And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Muddy Knees Media. This Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Winterval slash holiday season, The Athletic wants you to bog off. Because when you buy one annual subscription, you'll get another one for free. And similarly, when you gift a year's subscription, you can get one for yourself and no extra cost. So wave goodbye to 2020 and say hello to 2021 by sharing the gift of The Athletic's unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com totally. Totally Football Show. Today... Big Teams in Trouble special. Liverpool draw at the cottage in Saga Holiday's tribute. Palace stops Spurs with gate aid. While Burnley, Arsenal at the Emirates has eerie parallels with 80s jazz funk as Shaka attack gives Arsenal an unbelievably poor record. We review all that and get excited about the midweek round to come. Plus, Ted, Drake and, you really shouldn't have, books for Christmas. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's the 14th of December, 2020. Hope you're having a fantastic start to the week. As we pop open our advent calendar windows, we find Daniel's story lurking inside. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Nice to see a little Michael Cox there as well. Hi, James. And who's this? Hello, Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. Nice to see you all. Nice to see you all. And it's going to be interesting to hear your views on what's been a funny weekend in football. Funny. <laughs> they always are, aren't they? These mm. days. <laughs> yeah. Gavin asks, what was the last round of fixtures where none of the big six won? I'm assuming that Gavin's including Arsenal in the uh, nominal big six. I can tell you, at least Opta can, that uh, the last time that none of Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City or Man United won on the same weekend in the Premier League was the 6th or 7th of February 2016. And indeed, this is kind of true as well around Europe. Uh, we're a third of the way through the season. And interestingly, the leaders in the major leagues around the continent are Milan, Bayer Leverkusen, Sociedad, Spurs and Lille and Lyon, uh, who are joint leaders in Ligue 1 after Lyon beat PSG on Sunday night. What does it all mean? Well, it's an unusual season in terms of the fixtures. I mean, uh, everything is condensed. All the bigger clubs have just had, you know, the most intense Champions League or Europa League campaign we've seen, you know, two lots of three matches back to back. Um, and to take an example of Lyon, for example, I mean, somewhat surprisingly, because of the way that Ligue 1 was, was terminated early last year, they're not in Europe this year. Um, and we saw in the Champions League, um, you know, very unusual single leg knockout stage that Leon are actually a really good side um so they are one of the sides who have benefited I would say most from from the big clubs being a, a little bit knackered and I mean it's affected all clubs because for everyone it's a more condensed fixture list um I mean there was a, a good article uh, on the Athletic by my colleague Tom Warville who basically uh, showed stats to show that 
Um, basically, every side is pressing less this season. I mean, there has been a complete oh. change in the intensity of of matches, but yes, yeah, certainly it's affecting the bigger clubs more because they're playing more matches, and that's more of a factor than it's ever been before. That seems fair, Michael. Let me ask you this though: What was the strangest result of this weekend? Well, the one that surprised me the most was um, both in terms of performance and, I guess, result was was Fulham drawing with Liverpool, um, particularly Liverpool's first half performance, which sent Klopp into a kind of manic rage extended over about a 20-minute period on the touchline in which he kept shouting wake up at players, which I can't think of many worse alarm calls than having Jurgen Klopp scream wake up from a uh, semi-distant pose. But uh, yeah, that that they, they were really disappointing. They did come back into it because Fulham decided to understandably decide to sit deep and, and take what they had, although I think they would probably actually have been better carrying on trying to carry on doing what they had been doing. Um, I'd, Matt may well, may well mention Arsenal, but that feels less and less like a surprise. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it, Liverpool probably win it. The most surprising game of the weekend was just how tepid the, the Manchester derby was, unfortunately, I think. Although maybe we, the reason for that is because of the fatigue that we've been mentioning. But for that to be so insipid was um, was not what I was expecting. Well, we'll get on to all of those things. Quick run through the scores. Friday, West Ham won 2-1 at Leeds. Saturday was quiet. A late goal for Villa at Wolves. Newcastle beat West Brom 2-1. There were no goals in the derby at Old Trafford. And just a one for Everton in their victory over Chelsea. Uh, Sunday, Saints had this week's Premier League bye, a.k.a. Sheffield United. Palace got a point against Spurs, 1-1. Fulham did the same to Champions Liverpool. Burnley went and got all three at the Emirates. And Leicester did Brighton 3-0. It leaves us with Spurs and Liverpool still level on top. Leicester a third. Saints a fourth, just three points off first place, pushing Chelsea out the top four. But all the top eight teams are only five points apart. Arsenal... My 15th. They are five points from the bottom three, who are Fulham, West Brom and the Blades, who are now eight points from safety. We have a new round of matches starting on Tuesday with Wolves-Chelsea. So before that happens, let's get stuck into the weekend. And we'll begin with Sunday night at the Emirates. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Swings it in, good delivery in there. Yes, Clarence in the head. Oh, the Clarence in the head. I don't care. Has he come off a Bamiyang? Do we agree a Bamiyang on goal? Yep. There were two games going on. Who was actually watching this one, Matt? I think you were across Leicester Brighton. Is that right? Correct. All right, you're going to love this then, Daniel. You were watching events at the Emirates. Yeah, looks like my cause as well. Yeah. Michael was as well. Okay, so the Shaka sending off, uh, pretty pivotal, or just a symptom of a, a broader malaise? Uh, both, I think. Um, Arsenal actually started the second half pretty brightly, which feels slightly patronising given the apparent gentle fixture this was supposed to be or would normally be. Um, and it is definitely a sign of malaise. I think one of the the, the sure signs of a club in turmoil is a lack of discipline on the pitch from from senior players or if not in age then certainly in in its apparent or supposed quality and we've already had Pepe getting a straight red card for something dim and this was a straight red card for for Granite Xhaka for something equally dim and it, it, it's doubly bad for Arteta because he's shown a lot of faith in Xhaka when some Arsenal supporters not unreasonably have asked why he's in the team um, and from that moment on it, it felt as if the script was written. It felt as if Arsenal would 
kind of have to grind out a win that they've not been able to do of late and and yeah even the even the the, the manner of the the winning goal was you know the player who is struggling to score goals finally does score at the Emirates and it's in his own net it's it felt like if not the beginning of the end then partway through the end quite frankly um Arteta's post-match conference was pretty low as, as he has every right to be um but yeah it, it's a, a pretty toxic mood by the sound of it Michael, uh, what did you make of your kind of tactical disciple, Sean Dyche's uh, performance with Bur- with Burnley today? I mean, it was pretty much what Burnley always do. I mean, their tactics don't really vary from one week to the next. Um, yeah, it was it was classic. But I'm not sure there's too much to say about Burnley, really. I mean, I thought Arsenal were the better side until Xhaka's red card. Um, and even then, I don't think Burnley did anything to really force the issue or change things. They just... Uh, you know, eventually put a corner into the box and and got lucky from that. But uh, yeah, that was that was it from Burnley. Really, I think I think they would have been um, not comfortable, but they weren't that stretch in the final twenty minutes after they'd gone ahead. Mm. When you look at Arsenal, how far do they look from a team that can actually perform competently in the Premier League? Is it just goals that's missing? Um, I think there's various ways you can you can look at that. I mean, you can look at a very narrow focus in terms of today's game, where I think Arsenal actually were the better side. And from Marteta's perspective, I feel quite sorry for him that uh, his captain scores an own goal and his former captain or Arsenal's former captain gets a really silly red card. Um, but then you can look at it wider and you can say, I think Arteta's probably picking the wrong team. Um, I'm not sure you need to be picking Xhaka and Elneny at home to Burnley. You need players who can penetrate. You need you don't need players who are going to really guard against the counter-attack because that's not what Burnley do. And Xhaka's attempted to guard against one of the rare counter-attacks resulted in his red card. And then I think you can look at it even wider than that when... I mean, Arsenal were good last season under Arteta. They they rose up the league after he took charge. They won the FA Cup very deservedly by beating Manchester City and, and Chelsea, and they beat Liverpool in the league as well. Things were looking good. I think something has changed at the club from last season to this season. I don't quite know what that is, but we know that there's been some issues behind the scenes. There was this big, um, quite a big story at the time with, I think, 55 job losses at the club. You wonder how that has affected the morale at the club in general. It's also worth pointing out that the players, I think in April, had taken a pay cut of, of 12.5%. It was then reduced to 7.5% when they qualified for the Europa League. But it seems the players were under the impression they were taking that pay cut and that would protect the rest of the staff. So, I mean, that was a, a lot of people to lose from a club. And, and while a lot of them were in commercial and recruitment and maybe don't necessarily affect how the, the team is playing, you do wonder whether it's affected the morale. Because, mm. uh, like I say, Arsenal... People will go OTT and say, ah, oh, Tessa's a terrible manager or whatever. But he got them playing really well at times last year. And I think there must be something that explains how they've gone from that to being in 15th. Not really unfortunate to be in 15th place. There's a, a couple of games where they might have got a couple of extra points. But this is not Arsenal being unlucky every week. This is this is Arsenal in quite a state at the moment. I feel a bit sorry for Arteta, actually, um, because as Michael said, he did a really good job toward the end, end of last season. Obviously not going so well now, but it seems like there's something much more systemic. You know, How many people have changed position in, in the kind of roles above him at the club in recent years and, and had various job titles and lasted for six months and then gone? And their transfer business has been atrocious by and large for, for three or four years now. You think, you know... Willian on a three-year contract, David Luiz, Nicola Pepe, these kinds of players, they're not, they're not signings that have come in and improved the team in any tangible way, and yet they seem to keep 
happening again and again. And, and Arteta is an easy conduit for all the criticism at the moment. And that maybe is suiting some people above him just fine for him to be taking that flak rather than looking at, at the people who, who put him in the job and, and maybe the people who put the people who put him in the job who are, who are there and no longer there. And it's all just a bit of a mess, isn't it? And that inevitably spills over into results. The, the the one caveat to that, and it's not a you know it's not a, a targeted criticism of Arteta, but he must have known that that this would happen if his first job in management, his first frontline job as a manager, was at a big six club by historic reputation. We have to say now, rather than by league position or or current reputation, um, he he must have known that if Arsenal were fifteenth in the league after over a quarter of the season, then there would be serious questions asked. And but he surely wouldn't have expected that, Daniel. I don't think anyone... No, he wouldn't. No, no, of course he wouldn't. And it, it isn't just on him. But there is also... The problem is, is that there are some of his fingerprints on some of those other issues. You know, he did push for Williams signing. He did mm. push for Aubameyang's extended deal and then seems to be playing or having played him in this role that doesn't seem to get much out of him. He is still picking Alexander Lacazette every week when he doesn't seem to be in any form and it seems to be harming his confidence to leave him in the team. So, you know, it, it, the, the problem is, is that all these things are, are associated and there's never any one person to blame. And we've said that about other big six clubs pretty recently as well. Um, but yeah, he must be fearful for his job, I'd have thought, at some point if this continues. Well, still, as uh, Adam Harry points out, it was a nice advert though. Uh, so, so there's that Arsenal. Uh, Burnley, Matt Davis-Adams, you're famous for your incredible predictions. Mm. Prognosticate this. Are Burnley going to be okay now that they've crept out of the bottom three and pushed Fulham back into it? Um, I'd still worry about Burnley, to be honest. But I've seen Brighton this evening and they were pretty dreadful. So um, oh. I think... I think you know, Burnley might be okay because I've got Sheffield United and West Brom as already down, so there's only one spot left to fill. So it's Ooh. it's Burnley, Brighton or Fulham, essentially, by the looks of things, unless somebody like Newcastle has a, a tailspin of a second half of the season. But you, you kind of feel like Burnley will probably scrap their way to, to just about enough points. You say Newcastle, they're, they're all of four points above Arsenal. Would you never consider including Arsenal, you with your bold predictions, in the mix? Um, no, I wouldn't, because if things got that bad okay. for them, then they would sack the manager and bring in somebody capable of keeping them in the Premier League. I see. All right, a quick word on Brighton, who you saw in action uh, against Leicester Sunday night. Yeah, kind of classic Brighton, really. They had a couple of decent chances at nil-nil, um, mainly Danny Welbeck one-on-one with Schmeichel, who kind of kicked it away. Your handbash had also had a go. And they looked OK for about 20 minutes going forward, but defensively all over the place. And, and Leicester were really on it, particular James Justin um, really got the beating of Dan Byrne early on, and that, and that was where they got most of their joy from. James Madison was exceptional. Vardy was doing Vardy things, but the game was over by half-time. I, I should have switched over to um, Arsenal-Burnley for the second half, really, because nothing of note happened in it. But it might have been different if Brighton had scored early on, but even then you felt like they looked like they were going to concede a couple of goals. And um, that has kind of been the story for them all season. And they, and they look half the side without Tarek Lamptey, which is not a great sign when he's a you know teenage fullback. Mm-hmm. Flattering to deceive United, as I call them. Anyway, all right, well, next up for Arsenal, uh, they will be playing Saints, who earlier on Saturday had a big 3-0 win over Sheffield United. They'll be facing Saints, of course, without Granit Xhaka and Hector Bellerin, 
who <laughs> got uh, his fifth yellow card. Is that right? Is that what happened to him? Yeah, I think those yeah. two would probably be uh, top of Arsenal fans. Well, along with Willian, probably top of Arsenal fans list to uh, give a break from the side, shall we say. Mm. Daniel, you saw Saints in action against the Blades. How, how do you fancy their prospects against Arsenal and indeed Arsenal's prospects of keeping the, the five teams below them at bay with some kind of result in this game? Well, on, on, on today's evidence and, and beating Sheffield United, it should be said is, um, you know, is no badge of honour at the moment. But Southampton went third in the league with that win and they are they are playing brilliantly. And I think they've probably got the, the most informed defender in the Premier League in, in Yannick Vestergaard at the moment. He was, he was kind of playing this Virgil van Dijk role where he had so much time on the ball that he was able to kind of pick out these long passes over the top to Walcott and Adams and Ings to chase onto. But is is fantastic in the air as we know is such a presence and yeah I mean Southampton it, it sounds very much like um, the Leicester Brighton game in that as soon as the first goal went in you kind of felt like that was that and I mean Sheffield United are are absolutely terrible you know record breakingly terrible the 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 worst record in the English top flight after twelve games since Manchester United in nineteen thirty thirty one so I mean we're talking Ooh. seismically bad uh, and they look that bad quite frankly. The, the worst Premier League side previously ever was Derby County, and to kind of put things in perspective, this is the 2007-2008 season. At this point of the campaign, they had six points. Sheffield United currently have one. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a real worry, that, isn't it? You, you've got to hope that Sheffield United can pick out a couple of um, couple of wins from somewhere. Just on Southampton, Daniel says Vestergaard, the most informed defender in the Premier League. If there was mm. a, a form table for managers, I think Hasenhut would be top of it at the moment and, and you know if, if Mikel Arteta did get the sack from Arsenal I bet he'd be pretty high up on their list whether they'd, they'd want him or not but um, yeah what an extraordinary job he's doing as Daniel said they didn't beat much today but what I like about them as well is that they spread their goals around you know you think you think of Southampton you think of Danny Ings primarily they've had nine different goal scorers in the Premier League this season and players kind of chipping in you know Nathan Redmond got one today Walcott has added a lot more than I thought that, that he would add to Southampton since he's come in but again it seems like they've got a manager who's easy to play for in, in terms of you know giving them clear instruction for one thing but people want to play for him it seems like he's he's the standout manager in the Premier League for me at the moment. Lewis Collins asks can Saints make top six? Michael did you just roll your eyes at that suggestion? No 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 I was, I was glancing higher up my screen to scroll up the league table <laughs> very much the opposite. <laughs> I was just okay. seeing whether they're in the top six, and indeed they are. Yeah, yeah. They're, well, they're fourth now because Leicester's victory later on on Sunday pushed them da- down. And they went a point above them. But uh, what do you think? So it's a it's a consensus, a broad consensus, is it? Well, it, the, their issue is 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 the depth of the squad, which is going to be the issue for for several teams. I think who who start the season pretty well, and probably for some of the biggest teams, given the European commitments. But yeah, I mean, they they actually cope pretty well without without Ings, but I think if if Romeo or Ward-Prowse got injured in centre midfield, there's not really a lot of depth behind it. They sold Lamina, they sold Harrison Reed. There isn't a lot, a lot else there. Um, but in terms of first team on first team, they are one of the form teams in the Premier League. And and I'd, I'd, I'd point out the kind of Leon point as well. They're the only one of the top five who aren't involved in Europe. Um, and I think that will mean that they have freshness that the other sides don't. And they are a side who, who press very well very cohesive without the ball I think they could have a really good well they are having a really good season but 
I think we will see real tiredness from the big clubs over the next month. The, the fixture list over Christmas really is quite incredible considering a lot of these sides are running on empty already. So I fancy Southampton to go really well. The other the other slight fly potential fly in the ointment is is exactly what Matt mentioned as well, is that the next big six club or big club abroad that wants to appoint a new manager um would be foolish not to be hammering on Hasenhutel's door, quite frankly. Whether right, that's like Manchester Bruce United. Dortmund, for example. Well yeah, although that that might wait until next summer, um, which would suit Southampton if if indeed he was on their list. I'm not sure he is. But I'm I mean I'm talking about Arsenal and Manchester United. Most chiefly, I think that he would improve, be an improvement on both of the managers they have on current evidence. And with Arteta, there's a there's less of a um, you know there's less of a, a a file of evidence there. But with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, there's a larger file, and I think Hasenhutl will do a far better job. Okay, let's just conclude this part then with this stat from Michael Cox: As of today, Arsenal have played as many Premier League games at the Emirates as they did at Highbury, two hundred and seventy-two each. My word. I, I worked that out by myself, like manually today. And uh, Martin Tyler used it on commentary. And really? I googled and I'd searched Twitter. No one else had come up with it. And I didn't get any credit for it. Actually, while we're on the subject of uh, what people on Sky said, you know things are, are bad for Arteta because Graham Sooner said, this is Arsenal Football Club we're talking about. And when, it, <laughs> when they say that, wow, he's in trouble. Well, next up on the Totally Football Show, we will be ooh, looking at Sunday afternoon's action with those surprising results at Craven Cottage and Selhurst Park. Well, the fans who are back in the ground today for the first time are making a lot of noise despite being spread out all the way from pitch side to the uh, highest tier. Yeah, I'm not sure they should be there, Mark. Uh, why is that, Steve? Well, you're not allowed to watch a game in the highest tier, are you? Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy Power's offers are at full capacity. If one leg of your 4 plus 4 Acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football and all markets. The Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Top of the table are Spurs and Liverpool, level on points, both held by unfancied opponents on Sunday, and they meet each other on Wednesday, which should be fun. Uh, so Spurs had a 1-1 at Palace. Should we, should we start this bit with that? Harry Kane opening the scoring, and Vicente Gaeta receiving pelters for not stopping his swerving drive. And then it was uh, levelled up uh, when Jeffrey Schlupp uh, got on the end of that spilled ball. The free kick coming in from Izzy and Loris not, not managing to hang on to it. Um, Vicente Gaeta very much, uh, as I say, criticised early on but fated by the end but his, for his string of incredible saves in this match. Yeah, what I really liked uh, is the way you saw Gaeta and Joe Hart after the game kind of 
discussing the curve of the ball that made him look incredibly foolish. He did make some really good saves, but I thought they focused that on that a little bit too much at full time because actually Palace fully deserved their point. It made it sound like Gaita was the only reason that Palace got a point. And actually the only reason they got a point is that they continued to attack Tottenham as Tottenham sat deeper and, and broke down Tottenham in a way that other teams haven't recently, which given Palace's pretty mediocre home form, um, is a tribute to them. Eze is a joy to watch and him and Zaha together on the pitch is, is, is basically Palace's oxygen this season because that will keep them in mid-table, I think. Ed Quotha Raven asks, what is the pod's favourite thing about Eberichi Eze? Uh, he is fantastic, isn't he? I, I, think, I think that Zaha must be absolutely thrilled that he's arrived because it takes such a, a large part of the burden off him. He's, he's one of those players who just looks great when he's dribbling with the ball at his feet. You know, he's really elegant. You feel like he could, he could run just as well with the ball at his feet as, as not. Um, putting a great free kick for, for the equalising goal here. But, but Daniel's right. It, it was the least that Palace deserved. It's just really strange how Spurs just stopped playing in the second half and, and you could tell that, that Mourinho was a bit grumpy about it in, in the way that he sort of damned them with faint praise in the way that Klopp did with, with Fulham a couple of hours later of, well, you know what they're going to do, put balls in the box and, 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 you know, look for the second balls and the rebounds as if that's not a valid tactic to use in a football match and one that, you know, a, a capable defensive team should be able to repel. Right. Well, so Johnny Blaine, for example, articulating the criticism of many Spurs fans that of that that second half performance, how it typifies recent Tottenham approaches in, in the latter part of games. He says you have to go back to Lacelso's goal against Man City for Tottenham's last second half shot on target. Mourinho kind of responded to that, as you say, in, in the post game, saying that he'd actually told the players to do exactly the opposite of what they did in the second half. But <laughs> if they didn't do it, it's because they couldn't do it. And I give credit to Palace for that, said Mourinho magnanimously. <laughs> Uh, full house on your uh, mentions of people who've given comments, Johnny Blaine and Ed Quoth the Raven. I think they're yeah. your two most cited of all time. <laughs> Do you think? Probably. I'm not sure. It back, you know. So I think historically, if you if you take it back a while, yeah, they've 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 put in the the yards. So uh, okay, here's something else that uh, somebody said. Will. Us, given the positive results for home teams this weekend who had crowds, do you think it will f- uh, lead to an unfair advantage if some regions remain in Tier 3 for a while? Uh, certainly the support at Selhurst Park, possibly at Everton as well, possibly at Fulham too, had a bearing or at least was cited by those who, who came away with better results than they'd been expecting. I mean, it probably will have an impact. The, I've heard a lot of people using the phrase like unfair advantage, but I'm not quite sure what they think the solution is. I mean, the mm. Premier League can't get special dispensation to have fans in into games that are still in tier three. So is the argument that it should be that, or is the argument that no one should have any fans until everyone's allowed fans, which I think is a bit silly. I, I just think we're going to have to accept that there might be an imbalance, but get fans in wherever they're allowed as, as far as I'm concerned. The reality is, is that it's still, if, if we're saying that having some fans makes a difference, then logic dictates that having all your fans there provides an even bigger difference. So it, it, by that logic, the teams playing with 2,000 fans at games are still at a lesser advantage than they would be if they had all their fans there. Palace fully deserving of their point. Spurs complicit in only coming away with a draw, though. Would you say the same things about Liverpool's performance at Fulham? Or do you have more praise for the Cottagers? Uh, Liverpool were lucky to get a point in the game, I thought. Fulham could have been out of sight by 
half time. It's the best Fulham, of, well, certainly the best that I've seen Fulham play um, this season. I thought they were they were tremendous. Cavaliero, the last couple of weeks, has looked a really good player. Adam Ola Luckman, maybe one of the best pickups for a bottom half team so far this season. Like the look of Anderson and, and Ayner in defence too. Uh, Fulham, yeah, were excellent in this game. Liverpool were dreadful in the first half. They were much better after half time when they moved Jordan Henderson to centre back and bought on. Minamino for Matip, which was a bit of a curveball, but yeah, for Fulham deserving of at least a point in this game. And yeah, they, they showed me enough to make me think that they might not get relegated this season. Fulham supporters will probably argue that they should have had all three points because there was that moment when Fabinho slid in on Caballero, didn't get a penalty after VAR had looked at it for three minutes, but I, I thought it was pretty clear cut. No, he takes away his standing leg or what would have been his standing leg. I I, th- I think it was a penalty, but I, I the honest answer is I don't know if it should have been a penalty because if the referee didn't give it and clear and mm. obvious is still a thing, then I've got no idea. I, I think it probably was right. a penalty. Do I think it was enough to overturn it? The odd thing to me was that the referee looked at it and, and didn't give it. That That's unusual. That's only the second time that's happened. Um, but yeah, I thought it was touch and go. I, I, I was It was weird to hear Jamie Carragher on commentary kind of say he's definitely got the ball, he's definitely got the ball, which... There's, there's getting the ball doesn't always matter if you kick through the man to get the ball that's still a foul but the, I, I thought it was touch and go all right Daniel we're trying we're hoping to get him back on the podcast one day I thought that I thought that incident was interesting because I think it says a lot about VAR which a lot of people still haven't really factored into their thinking one incident can look completely different from different angles from behind the goal or from behind the byline it looked like a clear foul Whereas from side on, it really looked like um, Fabinho had got the ball. And it's, it's, that's one of the many reasons why I think this clear and obvious thing is very difficult because it can look different from two different angles. So we watched it 20, 25 times. I didn't think it was a penalty. Some people think it was really? a stone wall penalty. So it's not it's Even not though on obvious. one angle, you can, you can see that he clearly takes away the guy's foot. <laughs> yeah, but that's my ball. point. On another angle, you can see that he clearly gets the ball. I don't know how people are just taking one angle when it looks so different and saying, well, that's definitive. Because when an incident happens, no, because not all angles are, are, are the same value. I mean, this goes, this is perhaps well, a broader point. It, well, you know, mate, there are some angles that show you events more clearly than others. But, I mean, it's not necessarily about clear, about how clear it showed. It just, well, it just it suggested something. Well, I think my angle was more clear than the angle that you saw. All right, then. Okay. Worth pointing out that it was a it was a full and penalty as well, wasn't it? You know, I know they right. scored the last one, but there's no guarantee that that it would have resulted <laughs> that's, that's in a fair. goal. All right, well, let me ask this question then. Uh, they Fulham lost their first four games of the season. Their first six games, they only got one point from, and that was against Sheffield United. Then they do something like they go away to King Power and they beat Leicester there two 0 Now they come pretty close to getting all three points against uh, Liverpool. How are they doing this? What happened to them? Well, they, they, they embarked on a period of recruitment late on in the window, which typically makes you worry because it feels like they've panicked. But And maybe they did panic. But if they did panic, they certainly landed on some excellent signings. You know, we've mentioned um, Adam Ola-Luckman and he looks like one of the best players in the bottom half. Um, Ola Reiner looks good. Ariola is the best goalkeeper they could ever wish for. And yeah, it just seems to have completely changed the mood. Ruben Loftus cheek in midfield. I mean, he, he bizarrely he hasn't even started every game he's been available for for Fulham. But if he does, they are a better team than some of the teams above them. I think. I think they have better players than Burnley now. It's just how quickly 
Scott Parker could knit those together um, and whether the defence could stay firm. But I thought Anderson was great today at centre-back. He looks like a defensive leader. And I don't think they will stay up, but you know, I've got a lot more confidence in them doing it than I did a month ago. There's a positivity about Fulham that I don't see with the likes of West Brom, who obviously they came up with it. And I think it's it's almost as if they are accepting that their fate is going to be battling against relegation and maybe battling against relegation in vain. But but they know that that's what their mission is. Maybe Burnley didn't think that at the start of the season. Brighton probably had grander ambitions. Sheffield United certainly did. And that might serve them well. You know, they 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 can be positive even in the in the face of that poor start that you mentioned. And they have got some depth to their squad in a way that, that teams like Burnley and, and by the looks of it, Sheffield United haven't. Very briefly, they also, it also shows the power of, we talk about unfair advantages, it shows the power of, of location because there is no way that if Fulham were based where West Brom are based or where Burnley are based, that they would get the calibre of players they've got, particularly the lone players from Chelsea. I think it makes a huge difference. You, you speak to Chris Wilder and he talks about the players that he tried to bring to Sheffield United in the summer, like Ollie Watkins, and they just weren't really prepared to to move there. And he yeah, went to I, Birmingham. I mean, he, yeah, okay. He wasn't going. To, he wasn't going to Seville. <laughs> Might it be Chris Wilder who's just not the most welcoming of managers? Maybe, but I think I think Fulham do benefit from having that. They feel mm. like a nice, gentle club. They're in a nice part of. A nice attractive manager as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on on Fulham, is it worth pointing out as well, in terms of what Daniel said about them doing their recruitment late on, they had the smallest ever gap between confirming their promotion and starting the Premier League campaign. They had about six weeks. So we shouldn't be too surprised it took them a while to get into their stride. And I do wonder, and I haven't done the stats because I've literally just thought of this, but if you were to give them the usual gap between promotion and first game of the season which is what two and a half three months Mm. you you cut off all their bad results so i mean obviously you can't they can't make that argument the season starts when the season starts but they have now got into their stride i mean their results in recent weeks have been uh, pretty good you know they deservedly beat west brom they uh, deservedly beat leicester they went toe-to-toe with liverpool against man city they were probably outclassed but it's only two nil in a game where i think a lot of people expected them to maybe lose five or six so a fair play to uh, Scott Parker. I think he's done a really good job, and and I must say, I was, I was really wondering whether they were were doing the right thing by sticking by him. But uh, yeah, he's really made them made them solid more than anything else. Will you be working up those numbers, uh, Michael? For I don't know the benefit of commentators. Uh, maybe uh, yeah. If Martin Tyler wants to give me any uh, credit, then I'm, I'm more <laughs> right. than happy to. Uh, now, uh, how worried should Jurgen Klopp be by this performance? Will he? have woken up his team by Wednesday when they take on Spurs, against whom they've got a terrific record of late. They've won their last five meetings against them, including one particularly big one in Madrid. At Anfield, in fact, they haven't lost to Spurs since 2011. Any thoughts in particular? Hard though it is to preview a game like this, fresh off uh, Sunday's performances. I think the interesting thing was that the two most disappointing players to me uh, against Fulham were were Mo Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold. And... Klopp picked both of them in the Champions League for an absolute dead rubber. And mm. he's had a lot to say this season about fatigue and tiredness, but I couldn't I couldn't fathom why Salah played 90 minutes against Michelin. Well, he said he needed the, he needed 
the minutes essentially to get back to fitness after the the COVID that he had. Yeah, he he looked like he had too many minutes. I think well, <laughs> he didn't he didn't look at it at all. I particularly with Spurs coming in the week, um, it seemed a very odd move to play them last week. Um, and Joel Matic went off injured. You know that wasn't just a tactical move to bring Henderson into the back four. Matic right. went off injured with a back problem, and if. If it was a bad enough injury to bring him off, I suspect it, it puts him in serious doubt for, for the Spurs game. And Jugo Jota also is joining their injury list and he's out until February, I think. I think it's the one thing you can criticise Klopp for this year. I mean, I think there's an argument to say as well, back end of last season, Liverpool had wrapped up the league really by Christmas and he didn't rotate the players much in January, February. And then maybe you can say that they looked a bit short against Atletico. So I've been surprised by his lack of rotation as as someone who obviously was in charge of Dortmund. They looked very burnt out by the end of the campaign. We were told that Klopp had learned his lessons from that. I mean, he's still doing a great job. But yeah, I think that was an odd decision as well. And I don't completely buy the thing about needing minutes after COVID. That seems... I was surprised by that excuse, I would say. It's going to be interesting to see how Mourinho approaches this because it, theoretically with what we're saying about about Liverpool's depleted squad and lack of form, this would be a good opportunity for Spurs to go to Anfield and win. But as we've seen, that's not really the Mourinho way to approach these, these kind of away games against fellow big six sides. So you wonder if, particularly given how cautious they were even against Palace in the second half, if, if he'll think, OK, maybe it's worth being a bit more adventurous on Wednesday. They could profit from it. Yeah, just on Spurs and the way that they played in the second half, I thought it was interesting that the nature of their concession, because it was a kind of scrappy goal, but that's the kind of goal that Tottenham have managed to avoid in the other games. And I just don't think you can guarantee you're going to avoid it, if that makes sense, if you play this this way that Mourinho likes, where you sit really deep. I think you can guard against being opened up with good combination play. You can guard against balls over the top in behind, but you can't legislate for deflections or goalkeeping mistakes or set pieces that go in. And I, I think... Tottenham played really well this season, but their their very good defensive record, I think they've been slightly flattered by that. And I think if they continue to play as they do, they will concede more goals than they have. All right, well, possibly this Wednesday. We shall see. Very good. In a moment or two, we'll be getting on to Saturday's action, which was absolutely blistering. First, something else. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. It's December the 14th, everyone, and if that date sounds a little familiar, that's probably because on this day, 85 years ago, Aston Villa lost 7-1 at home to Arsenal, with all seven Arsenal goals scored by one man, Ted Drake. Don't take my word for it. Drake kicks off for Arsenal in the league match against Villa wearing white shorts. Villa have brought in so much new talent that they are known as the Bank of England team, but they have yet to prove their sterling worth. Arsenal goes quickly ahead thanks to their centre-forward Drake, who has apparently decided to win the match on his own. Continuing his display of brilliant opportunism, he plays ducks and drakes with the Villa defence. Villa's expensive experts are unavailing, and Drake scores at regular intervals, getting two more in the first half. To Villa's one, he gets seven, equaling the league record of 47 years standing. Here you are, Villa, here's the man you want, Ted Drake. That sounds like a <laughs> parody of the fast show or Mitchell and Webb or something. That's all too real, Daniel. Ted Drake, former gas inspector, 
and Arsenal reserves only called up for this game, if memory serves, because of injuries to their other forwards. Scoring seven goals in this game with just eight shots, setting, as we heard, a new English record. One, though, that would only last, amazingly, for 12 days. Because, yes, less than a fortnight later, Tranmere Rovers forward Bunny Bell scored nine of his side's 13 goals against Oldham Athletic in a third division North encounter. This was before VAR, obviously, so you could chalk off probably half of those for stray armpits and nose hairs and that kind of thing. But I'm happy to say that Drake's seven <laughs> remains the most goals scored by an English top division player in one game to this day. The Premier League record for goals in a game is five, held, of course, by Andy Cole, Alan Shearer, Jermaine Defoe, Dimitar Berbatov and Sergio Aguero. Do you want a little bit more what happened next stats on this? Sure. Michael's not bothered. That's, that's very but... generous of you, Matt. <laughs> okay. Drake scored 124 goals in 167 appearances and went on to manage Chelsea to the Blues' first league title in 1955. That Ted Drake. Villa, by the way, that season also shipped seven league goals at home to Borough and West Brom on their way to conceding 110 goals. Wow. They were relegated. That's enough of all that then. Could have done with Ted Drake on Sunday evening at the Emirates. Certainly could have done with him on Saturday at Old Trafford in a very turgid encounter, which you mentioned before, Matt, the nil-nil between Man United and Man City. Probably, listener, you'll feel that the least time we spend speaking about this, the better. But but let me just ask, who was the bigger loser apart from literally everybody watching? I was initially thinking it was Manchester City, but then I read that they equaled a club record of six clean sheets in a row in the league. So maybe actually... Not, and John Stones is is all of a sudden England's uh, future at centre-half again. But I, I find, I mean, Man United are just this kind of tragic comedy this season, aren't they? You know, you're waiting for the manager to get sacked or somebody to leave. But City, I just find them so tedious. And they're also doing worse than United. I mean, every time we talk about United, everyone says, but yeah, other people are doing worse. And yeah, City's actually a point and a place below them. Yeah, still in the Champions League, though, aren't they? Well, I suppose I think, that's um, I think both sides are, are winners after Sunday. You know, if you were gonna, if you'd have told them at the start of the weekend that that they wouldn't have dropped points on any of the, um, well, I say big six, but more importantly, Tottenham, Chelsea, and Liverpool, then they would have snapped your hand off for that. And it's a game that felt like that. Um, I think it was it was it was more of a case of of Guardiola knew that if 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 his side got caught on the counter again and knows how good Manchester United are at doing that, then they might have taken a hit to morale that maybe wouldn't recover you know you have to remember that City had lost their last four away games at big six teams Tottenham twice Chelsea and, and Manchester United last season so I think he played it pragmatically which is pretty un Guardiola like but I think it worked and Manchester United didn't really get anything going so we, we've talked about them as a team of individual talent before and the reality is is that if that talent doesn't really turn up then the team won't really turn up. Both managers making just one substitution each in the game which does rather speak of a lack of ambition, Michael. The game was clearly very boring. I didn't think it was very boring because the teams were playing bad. I thought it was very boring because the teams just didn't want to risk going for the win and losing the point. And it got me thinking about, you know, Jimmy Hill in 1981, who came up with this revision to football's laws, the first country in world football who did it, changing from two points to win to three points for a win. And the rationale was that in situations like this, you'd never get teams thinking, well, let's not, you know, risk losing one point because there's only one, uh, you know, we can only go from one to two. The idea was that, you know, if you offer an extra point for the win, 
you incentivize teams to gamble. And what are you suggesting? A, a bit, well, I just wonder how many points you'd have to give for a win before you never had a game like that. If you offered 10 <laughs> points for a win, I don't think you would have had that game. So what is the cutoff point? It just, it just got. I mean, I think I'm right in saying it was uh, the Isthmian League featuring my very own Kingstonian who first used three points for a win. I would, I mean, the, that league is a shambles this year. It's been, um, you know, hasn't hasn't been on for a couple of months because of the, the lockdown. I'd happily use the rest of this league campaign to give ten points for a win as an experiment to see how many nil nils you had. I, I just, yeah, just just experiment because. I mean, maybe people won't find that as fascinating as I would, but we'd all find it more fascinating than that game. That was just dreadful. Just just nothing interesting at all. So, yeah, you've got to give more points, I think. I think we should also say that I'm, I'm very happy that we look to have a, a title race that might involve two, three, or four or five clubs. But when you get tight, title races and when you get multiple teams in and around those top two or three positions you are more likely I think to get these kind of results you know half of the the nil nils in the Premier League this season have been between big six clubs Um, and just exactly like the Man U Chelsea game and the the Chelsea Spurs game it felt like both managers would have shaken hands on the draw at the start and if they would have done that you especially with this you know people trying to save fatigue michael's absolutely right they played it like the end of a world cup group game where both teams knew a draw would take them through um it was kind of football by numbers rather than football by any kind of creative design are you expecting similar scenes this midweek when man united visit the blades that's on thursday and city host west brom on Tuesday, West Brom, who may or may not still have Slaven Bilic in charge, there were those rumours that if he were defeated to Newcastle at the weekend, he might have to walk. And indeed, West Brom were uh, on the wrong end of a 2-1 scoreline at St James's Park on Saturday. I think we're more likely to see it in Spurs-Liverpool. Um, right. But, yeah, I, I mean, I suspect the other teams... It would be it would be amusing if Sheffield United got their first win of the season against against Manchester United team that have set a club record for away wins in a row. I'm sure it would be amusing for you, Dan, but not for us. No, yeah, not for everyone. I accept that. Not for everyone. All right. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Man United heavy favourites in that game on Thursday, as are City, as they take on West Brom at the Etihad. West Brom, uh, as I mentioned, 2-1 losers to Newcastle Saturday afternoon. Uh, Newcastle opened the scoring, as you probably saw, just 19 seconds into the game through Miguel Almiron with their second fastest goal in Premier League history. What's the latest, if we know it, on Slavin Bilic? Just one win in 12 for his West Brom side. And does it look like poor management? Does it look like removing him will necessarily solve much of of their problems? I think Daniel marked West Brom's card quite early in the season in that they've got the look of a club who were happy to come up and bank the money and, and take their chances without spending too much of it. They're almost, almost a bit like Norwich were last season, really. I'm not sure... If they got rid of Billich, unless there's been some big fallout, with, you know, with with him in the board and it, and it becomes untenable, I'm not sure that, you know, bringing in Pepe Mel or Alan Pardew or whoever they would go for is going <laughs> to radically transform their their results. So it just feels like they're they're just plummeting towards the championship. Changing the managers not going to have that much of an impact on that, but they'll make a few quid and then they'll they'll probably come back up within the next two or three years. Chris Wilder, Chris Wilder to save the baggies would be a lovely story. <laughs> Now, also on Saturday, Chelsea joined the ranks of the big sides misfiring, getting beaten 1-0 
by Everton, who'd had a really rotten run of form. Here's another of your favourites, Michael, the red-haired dude, who says, is it a worry for Lampard that Chelsea have not beaten a single side in the top half this season? The Everton goal came about when Edouard Mendy clattered Dominic Calvert-Lewin in the box, and then uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson put away the penalty. Then Chelsea had over 70% of possession, but they couldn't find an equaliser. Didn't have many shots, in fact. They didn't register a shot on target in this game from the 28th minute onwards. No, they did hit the woodwork twice, though, which is, is you know, ah. not not bad going. But the, the problem that Chelsea had in this game was, uh, well, there were a few problems. You, you mentioned Mendy for the penalty, but if Thiago Silva had dealt with Calvert-Lewin better, then, then Mendy probably wouldn't have given the penalty away. But Chelsea had key absentees for a game like this. You know, they, they needed, in that kind of game, they needed either the guile of Hakim Ziyech or, or the direct running of Christian Pulisic. They didn't have either. And not only did they not have those two, but they didn't have Callum Hudson-Odoi either, who, who could have filled in. And and probably if Lampard had his time again, he would have picked Tammy Abraham instead of Olivier Giroud because they could have done with a bit more mobility up front. But he, he I'm sure, felt a, a sense of obligation to pick Giroud because of how good his form had been previously. And, you know, Chelsea always lose at Everton, pretty much. Uh, and last season, they were unlucky in that they went to Goodison Park the game after Marco Silva had got sacked and everybody was being buoyed up by Duncan Ferguson and they destroyed Chelsea on that day. And, you know, this day, for, for whatever whatever impact it had, it was the first time supporters have been in Goodison Park for nine months and, and that possibly was a factor as well. I don't think there's a, a great deal to read into the fact that that Chelsea lost this game and the wheels are falling off and maybe they haven't beaten anybody in the top half, but they've also lost two games in 90 minutes this season. Fair enough. Although I would just add on the subject of injuries that Everton came into this with key absences as well, not just the two fullbacks, Coleman and Dinia, but also uh, James Rodriguez was, was absent too. Yeah, I think Matt is being a little bit generous to, to Lampard there because... Uh, the big thing with Lampard wasn't just the defensive vulnerability, it was the lack of balance. And I think they're still lacking that. You know, it's not just that they haven't beaten a top half team, it's that they've only scored three goals in five games against those top half teams. And they were all against Southampton at home when they also conceded three times. So they did they didn't really find the balance in that game. So it will take time, but I, I think if they don't sort that out quickly, that will hamper any title challenge because you can't be so weak in an attacking sense against those teams around you if you are if you are to sustain a title challenge like that. I thought the Mendy mistake was interesting because I was surprised he didn't get more criticism for the goal he conceded against uh, Leeds the previous weekend when Bamford rounded him and put it into the empty net. I thought that was slightly poor sweeping. He seemed to get to the edge of his area for that one and then decided he couldn't really go for it. And obviously conceded the, the goal essentially because of bad sweeping this time around. So it's a bit of an adjust. I mean, I didn't see much of Wren last year, I must be honest. But I imagine they didn't play as high a defensive line as Chelsea. But he's going to have to do that a lot this year. One, because they play the high defensive line. And two, because Thiago Silva is not the best at covering space in behind these days. What, well, to be honest, probably hasn't been for five years or so. So maybe just a slight weakness there, uh, you know, amongst an otherwise very impressive start from him. Probably worth pointing out that uh, Edouard Mendy, extensively scouted by Petr Cech for Chelsea. Petr Cech will be playing for Chelsea's under-23 teams tonight, Monday, uh, as we speak. Is that the, like the oldest player ever in an under-23 match? 
Um, it probably is not because you can have three overage players plus the goalie. So you quite often get if you've got a sort of knocking on to forty year old goalkeeper, they will they will quite often play in these games. Petr Cech is younger than Willy Caballero. Okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, Wolves are playing Chelsea on Tuesday in the Premier League. I think so that Chelsea won five two at Molyneux last season. Matt, you're going along. Yes, I am. I'm looking forward to it. I always like going to, to Molyneux. And I would think that Tammy Abraham will come back in for this game because he scored a hat-trick in the fixture last season and really beat up Connor Cody on that day. So it would be um, it would probably be something that Lampard will, will look to do. Um, probably won't see Fakaya Tomori, though. He scored Chelsea's goal of the season in this game last season, but cannot get a sniff at the moment. Mm. Wolves this weekend played host to... One of the uh, Premier League's most troublesome visitors, historically. That's Mike Dean. Yeah, and Aston Villa were there as well. It was a 1-0 win for Villa. Mike Dean marking the occasion by brandishing his 3,000th card ever. The recipient was Matty Cash. This 23 years after Dean first unleashed a yellow when Rotherham played Barnet in 1997. Also making history in this game, Conor Cody, who had the first shot of his Premier League career, on his 88th appearance. Anything else you want to say about Aston Villa's win in the West Midlands derby? Slightly interesting that Grealish didn't take the pen, even though he was on the mm-hmm. pitch. No, Ollie, Ollie Watkins missed the last one, but El Ghazi had come off the bench, hadn't he? And apparently he was the planned penalty taker, but you would have thought that Grealish, captain and all, would have, would have been the one to take it. Mm. As for Wolves, uh, now dependent on uh, Fabio Silva, how are you feeling about his prospects of carrying the load up front? I I thought Nuno probably got it wrong because he without Jimenez as that focal point presence, Fabio Silva may be in the future many things, but he isn't that at the moment. And it kind of felt crucial that they'd need to win the midfield battle um, to kind of establish themselves. And in the end, they didn't. They just had Dendonka and Moutinho, who Moutinho is great, but he, he didn't really have the legs to deal with three Aston Villa central midfielders. Um, uh, so it just felt like the game got away from Wolves because of that and they've got a really hard run coming up they have slightly faded I suppose back into the mid-table pack after a a couple of really good seasons When I think of Portuguese strikers over the years I think not very prolific but really good movement and I think that's what I've seen so far from Silva I wouldn't expect him to be prolific because he's 18 but his movement is very good he makes the right runs and uh, I'm sure goals will come in time Very nice Possibly not in time for this midweek, though, when they host Chelsea. Now, one other game took place uh, kind of this weekend, or in this round of matches anyway. It was on Friday night, and it saw West Ham victorious away at Leeds. This is now West Ham's second best Premier League season ever. They've earned 20 points from the first 12 league games. Uh, Only in 2015-16 did they get to that point quicker. Leeds, meantime have now gone five games without a win at Ellen Road and they keep conceding from set pieces. Credit to, to David Moyes, not just for, for the form that you mentioned, but also because he's he's done it kind of on his terms. He's he's sacrificed the the glamour names. You know, Anderson went out on loan, Yarmolenko wasn't in the squad. He dropped Issa Diop from the squad in, entirely in favour of Craig Dawson on the bench. Manuel Lanzini was on the bench. He's dropped the club captain, Mark Noble. And he feels like he's kind of surrounded himself with players like Suchek and Kufal and uh, maybe Balbuena and Antonio and Bowen who kind of fit his own managerial identity of you know being incredibly workmanlike but that not necessarily being mutually exclusive from quality and I don't think that's any coincidence that West Ham's forms improved since. How worried should we be 
Matt, who knows about these things, for Leeds United, who are only a point above Arsenal? Uh, this is just what newly promoted clubs do, isn't it? They, they go through patches where they have good form and then they go through patches where they have bad form. I don't think there's anything particular to worry uh, for them. be interesting to see what their approach to the to the transfer market is in, in January because they made such a big play of getting Augustan, didn't they, last year and then, then barely played him and he went back and the same had happened with Nketiah earlier in the season and, and you'd think with the... You know, the much-talked-about Bielsa team burnout that they might need to, to add a few faces in January, so that might be pivotal for them. But there's definitely three worse teams than Leeds this season. They'll, they'll finish somewhere between 9th and 14th. Leeds midweek have Newcastle at home. I don't really know whether this is a valid point worth saying, but Leeds-Newcastle is one of those games I think of as quite a big game, even though it's never really been a big game at any point in my lifetime. Just because they're like two big traditionally big clubs one city clubs it just Leeds versus Newcastle is just it just looks exciting on paper even though it's two clubs who you know probably be bottom half this year that's what gave us the I would love it rant wasn't it it was after Leeds Newcastle all those years ago that's a great shout that justifies me talking complete nonsense (laughs) for the previous 30 seconds thanks Matt so what was the score that day when Kevin Keegan came on air and, and the kind of proto Richard Keyes, Andy Gray, Sky Sports Newcastle won one nil, I think. Very, very tight game. You've got to send a copy of that to Alex Ferguson, haven't you? Etc. and so on. And then he used the phrase Knotts Forest, which doubtless you two found really annoying. Ruined it, yeah, because it was just before Stuart Pearce's testimonial, which uh, Newcastle played Forest in, but just after they'd met in the league, and that was why Fergie was so riled about it. But yeah, very poor from Keegan there. Right. Hey, we'll talk about Knotts Forest very, very shortly, Matt. <laughs> uh, and we'll also... Have more more bookings than Mike Dean. A mm, little bit of a Christmas list. Before any of that, though, with our roundup of the Premier League weekend concluded, let's get some odds on the midweek action from our pal Lee Price. Hello, listeners. How are you? Uh, I don't know how to respond to that because this is pre-recorded. So I'll just go with what I have to do sometimes because my hearing isn't all that and just give a little, mm, there you go, all bases covered. Anyway, right, back to the football. It never stops. Midweek is the new weekend, as in there's nothing to do but sit in front of the TV. Okay, sure, I have a family to talk to, but come on. I've been asked to talk about Liverpool versus Tottenham, and I will, I promise, but I just wanted to point out quickly that West Brom are 22-1 to to win at Manchester City, with the hosts 1-12 to to take the three points. That's about as one-sided as it gets, and I'm always sceptical when I see that, if you do fancy West Brom to avoid defeat, consult a doctor immediately. But otherwise, the odds there are 13 to 2. You never know, except, well, our traders think they do. Back to that biggie, the two tabletoppers colliding, and it's tough to call, but nil-nil. Gotta be. The Jose special. Liverpool 8 to 11 to win, Tottenham 7 to 2, and the goalless draw is 12 to 1. Hey, I'm due to be right about something this year. Love you lots. Bye-bye. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show is out on Monday with Matt... Da- oh, that's you. Matt Davis-Adams, you're hosting the Totally Football League show on Monday. I am, yeah. Uh, we've got Michelle Owen joining uh, Sam Park and Adrian Clark and I from uh, Soccer Saturday, Five Live, etc. She was at the big South Wales derby between Cardiff and Swansea. So we will be talking about that. Uh, plenty of other championship stuff too. Probably not Forest because they are rubbish and I'd rather not talk about them. But maybe I was going to ask you, how, how is Chris Hooten getting on at Forest? 
Not well, James. Not well at all. Um, very badly, in fact, although the problems are systemic, run a lot deeper than uh, a manager who's recently been brought in, etc. And so on, the captain, Joe Worrell, summed it up quite nicely on Saturday after the defeat to Brentford, where he said, it's rubbish, um, which was fair. Yeah, so we might talk about that a bit, but we'll also talk about a couple of managerial departures. Stuart McCall and David Dunn, both dismissed from uh, Bradford and Barrow, respectively, on Sunday. So that'll probably get a mention too. On Joe Wall briefly, he also said after the game in a an award-winning show of team spirit, let's face it, we're teammates, but we're not friends, which says a fair amount about what's going on behind the scenes at Forest. And, and actually, that is a good point, And it gives me an opportunity to plug Two Stars, which is the Forest podcast from The Athletic. We, we were talking about this. Paul Taylor, The Athletic's Forest correspondent, did a big interview with Joe Worrell. And one of the things he mentioned, which it can sound like an excuse, but I think there's some validity into it. Forest bought 14 players in the summer. What Worrell was saying as a kind of broader point was we haven't had any opportunity to socialise together because of the current restrictions in mm. Nottingham and the rest of the country. So we don't really know each other. We're not friends. We haven't been out for a pint in the chat or whatever. And, and that is the contributory factor, but it's not the main one as to why Forest have been so unbelievably appalling for about six months. Do you think it's a coincidence that the top two places are Norwich and Bournemouth at the moment and then... Watford are kind of joint third in the sense that usually you get one or two of the relegated sides completely bombing and coming mid-table or even like battling against relegation whereas this time again it's been quite a tight turnaround they probably didn't have as much time to get their best players picked off so like Pookie and Buendia still at Norwich do you think that's a, a thing has that applied to the other you know bigger club or the other sides that went down yeah, definitely. I, Bournemouth, you can say, you know, they lost Nathan Aki and Callum, Callum Wilson. Fraser didn't play much for them, but they did keep hold of some of their key players as well. Um, but Norwich, certainly, you know, Pookie got up to 50 goals in 100 games for, for Norwich this season. He's massive for them. Still got Campwell there as well, and that's definitely been a factor. It's quite depressing, actually, that they're the teams at the top of the table at the moment. But somebody like Ismail Assar playing in the Championship, far too good for that league. It's a massive advantage for Watford. It'd be interesting to see if they if they keep hold of those kind of players come January. I think the, the other the, the kind of flip side to that is that the other existing clubs in the division, Forest aside barely spent any money in the summer. I think there was only one player outside of Forest who was signed for more than three million pounds in the division, or three and a half million. And that was even Tony to Brentford, who obviously sold Said Ben Rama anyway. So I think there's just been less because of people being wary of COVID financially, I think there's just been less less movement in the transfer market which has helped them. Fabulous. Well, if you still feel you need to listen to the Totally Football League show, <laughs> that is out later on on Monday. But I think we covered most points there. Totally Scottish Football Show will be out on Tuesday. Offside Rule WSL edition also drops that day, as does the Totally Football Show European edition with plenty of storylines. I mentioned back at the top how top of the tables in the big leagues is not with the teams you might be expecting. Real Madrid look like they really are back though, moving to just three points behind Atletico Madrid by beating them in the derby after their success in the Champions League midweek. Uh, other big news includes the fact that Bayern are off the top in the Bundesliga and Dortmund have fired Lucien Favre, their manager. Anyway, we'll get Rafa, Alvaro, Jules and James on that on Tuesday. To conclude this edition of the Totally Football Show, Christmas, it's happening. Michael, you did a, a very public-spirited thread the other day of favourite football books that one could buy another person at Christmas. Curiously, the first two were both by you. If the intended recipient were lucky enough to already have read 
those two books, Zonal Marking and The Mixer, several times. What would you recommend for people to, to offer for stockings, etc. next of football books? And, and Daniel and Matt, if you've got any faves or indeed books that you think people should absolutely avoid, uh, then now's the time. Uh, one book I really liked that I think was on my list was uh, by Rory Smith. I know I shouldn't do that because he's often on this podcast and it makes it, you know, it makes it seem like I'm just favouring him. Um, but he wrote a really great book called Mister, which is about um, the English coaches who kind of went abroad at the start of the 20th century and kind of took the game to Spain and Brazil and Italy and all those kind of things, including um, your near namesake, James Richardson Spenceley was his name. Doctor. Yeah, Dr. Yes. James Richardson Spenceley. Yeah. And there was just loads of loads of. Uh, people in that book who I, I feel should be kind of more widely known and widely celebrated. Um, so yeah, right. I'd recommend that one. Well, the the square outside the Marassi in, in Genoa is, is Piazza, Dr. James Richardson Spenceley. So oh, nice. more, you know, recognised than that. Hard to imagine, really. Uh, also on your list, I noted, was your pal Cara with The Greatest Games, John Driscoll's Football's 50 Most Influential Players, Dominic Bliss with the Herbstein book, which is a particularly incredible story and that is definitely worth reading. Matt and Daniel, uh, any ones you'd like to, or as I say, you think people should maybe steer a little bit clear of? Uh, I remember reading Chris Waddle's autobiography uh, on holiday as a sort of 10, 12-year-old, and that was particularly disappointing. Um, but in terms of good ones, I, I like the the, the series that, that Mike Calvin did over the last couple of years, There's Nowhere Men Living on the Volcano and No Hunger in Paradise. They're really good books. Yeah, I have three books that you can buy on Amazon. I'd, I'd love it if you did so. One is 250 Days, which is the story of Eric Cantona's Kung Fu Kick and the making of modern Manchester United. One of them is Gaza in Italy, which is about Paul Gascoigne's time at Lazio, and I'd recommend the audio book of that for reasons <laughs> that become obvious when you listen to it. And no. um, Mind Games I wrote with, with um, Neville Southall, which is kind of his look at social justice and mental health in sport. Oh, they're all brilliant. For goodness sake, read uh, the uh, Gaza one. Don't listen to it because it's, <laughs> it's a really bizarre thing doing an audio book. I'm not sure if, you, if you've ever, ever done this. Basically, you turn up and normally if you do a voiceover, you, you get a piece of paper and you kind of you can make notes on it or whatever you're going to do. But you kind of you, you map out exactly how you're going to hit it, where you're going to put the emphasis and where you're going to take a dramatic pause. But when you've got, I don't know how many pages you got to on the Gaza story, Daniel, but it was a lot of pages. And you've got a recording <laughs> session and a sound. You're just going through it and you're basically saying it as you read it, which is yeah. quite strange. Mm. The weirdest thing was that obviously I wrote the, the ghost did the one for Neville and then he had to read the audio book. Ah. So he was reading something that was sold as his words, but written in a way like, that he says, I would never effing talk like this. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, that's the thing. That's, that is a fun listen. I was just going to say our, our friend Pat Nevin has just finished his autobiography, The Accidental Football Lurch, I think is out start of March next year. But we know what a, an interesting and varied career and life he's had. So that'll be worth a read, I'm sure. Certainly will be. Get that for Easter or something. Uh, speaking of books, we've actually got copies of At the End of the Storm to give away. Listen, this is a new book from Oliver K. James Pierce and other writers from The Athletic with inside stories from Liverpool's historic Premier League victory. We've got six of these to give away, one for each of Liverpool's European Cups, I think is the rationale there. Uh, to win one of these, give us your best Liverpool v Spurs related flip reverse in a tweet. 
Crikey, that's difficult. I imagine you can go to a kind of like a, a thread because 148 characters or whatever is going to be tricky. But basically, we're looking for a sliding doors moment in Liverpool and Tottenham's history and tweet them to us at The Totally Show. We'll pick out our favourites at The Totally Show with your best Liverpool v Spurs flip reverse in a tweet and you might be the lucky winner of a copy of At the End of the Storm. Uh, with that, unless there's anything else of a book or football-related uh, nature that you'd like to throw in, we'll wrap this Totally Football Show up. Michael? No, that's it from me. Thanks for having me. Daniel? No, thank you for having me too. Matt, all done? Yeah, been a pleasure. Fabulous. We're looking forward to hearing you on the Totally Football League show and the rest of you uh, at various other places soon. And listener, thank you for being with us. Have a super week. We'll catch up with you soon. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.